0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis, White House Deputy Coordinator for Monkeypox and Director of the CDC's HIV-AIDS Prevention Division. He talks about efforts underway to contain the Monkeypox outbreak in the
1: U.S. Whether it's a sexually transmitted disease, a sexually transmissible disease, I think at the end of the day, the advice is the same.
0: Lori Robertson joins us from factcheck.org and we end with a bright
2: idea, improving health and well-being in everyday lives.
0: Now, here are your hosts, Mark
2: Maselli and Margaret Flinter. The Biden administration has urged all Americans to take monkeypox seriously. It's a rare infectious viral disease. The U.S. has the highest number of known cases of any country right now, and the World Health Organization has declared the recent outbreak a public health emergency
0: And joining us today is Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis, the White House National Monkeypox Response Deputy Coordinator. He also serves as the Director of the Division of HIV Prevention at the Centers
2: for Disease Control. Well, thank you, Dr. Daskalakis, uh, for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk.
2: Uh, Let's start by asking you to update us on the latest situation with the spread, the vaccination and treatment for monkeypox. We understand the U.S. now has one death likely attributed to monkeypox. So
1: um, our current case count is 18,989 cases. Um, there is one case that's being investigated. So um, they're still working to get clarity. Um, the individual had multiple medical problems, and so they're still looking to evaluate the actual role of monkeypox in that person's demise. And so, of course, we send all of our condolences to the family, and um, you know, continue to see um, what the outcome of the epidemiologic evaluation is. Um, we continue to work really tirelessly to increase a couple of swaths of work that are important to the monkeypox outbreak. So the first is vaccine. So we, um, through a uh, FDA emergency use authorization of the vaccine that was uh, published on August 9th, we're able to extend the number of doses that could be uh, extracted from a single vial of vaccine by uh, changing the route of, this, of, of administration. So rather than subcutaneously, um, it is an int- it is an intradermal vaccine, and we're really seeing great uptake across the country, which means that what vaccine we do have, we're able to extend. It's up to five doses. In real life, it's closer to four for most people, and also have worked really hard to increase production Um, And that means both offshore um, at the uh, Bavarian Nordic plant in Denmark, but also just announced a fill and finish facility um, in Michigan. It is um, a facility that in effect bottles the vaccine. So it's it's actually usable. So that means that we are increasing production domestically, um, increasing production abroad, Mm -hmm. have more vaccine flowing as, as well as extending what we've got. Testing continues to, uh, to sort of uh, become more accessible. We're up to 80,000 tests that can be conducted on uh, any week in the United States. That compares to 6,000 at the beginning of the outbreak, so a lot of progress there. We continue to evaluate the investigational drug TPOX or Tecobirabat. Um, the exciting news that is in a few days, the, the NIH-sponsored studies will launch of TecoviraMAT while we continue to work on the uh, expanded access. One of the sort of big uh, news flashes is it used to take several hours to complete the IND paperwork for TPOX from the perspective of access. Now it's down to about 15 to 30 minutes per patient. So really exciting also have pre-positioned a lot of the drug closer to people so that everything happens much faster. And then lastly, continuing to do the work to provide really clear messaging. Um, And that really means being frank, really focusing on the exposures and and, and really working very intentionally to not generate stigma um, as we increase awareness of monkeypox across the country.
0: Well, there's some very good news there around testing and vaccines and treatment, and we certainly have been very uh, appreciative of being able to get the vaccine. and to uh, administer it at sites in our community health center sites around uh, Connecticut. But I know uh, you've announced some plans to support large LGBTQ plus events and some equity interventions to reach communities that are at highest risk of contracting the virus. Can you tell us a little more about these plans? What, what are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to uh, make up for something perhaps that we haven't been doing and maybe share an example of how they're going to work?
1: Great. So I'll say that the, that we're not really making up for anything. What we're doing is finally able to do extended work because we're not in a scarcity model for vaccine anymore. And so I think that the very first step in the equity interventions um, is not one that is one of the pilots, but it's actually making sure we have enough vaccine to be able to uh, to really work hard to get it everywhere in the arms it needs to get. So bringing it closer to people as opposed to having people try to find vaccine. So that's all very exciting. We have two different equity pilots that are happening at the same time. The first equity pilot, I like to call the macro pilot, which is large events that, uh, that come upon jurisdictions that focus on LGBTQAI plus individuals. And so there um, are several examples of of events that we're looking at, so I'll give you the short list. We've done Charlotte Pride in North Carolina, and there they almost did 600 vaccines in folks who were attending various Pride events. They actually not only focused it on Pride, but focused it on venues and and events that focused on uh, on black and brown people to really try to increase the the reach of uh, equity access of the vaccine. Labor Day weekend, um, there will be two other events. One is going to be in New Orleans called Southern Decadence, uh, and they're doing just an amazing combination of events. Um, they're they're actually going to venues and small events, and again, really focused on the communities who are overrepresented in the outbreak but underrepresented in the vaccine counts. Um, but also, they're they're doing what they're calling a health hub which is um, putting testing as well as vaccination um, right at the mouth of the uh, Louis Armstrong Park. So very prominent, very central to the event. So um, they actually have CDC folks on the ground as well who are helping them. So it is a a great example of this all hands on deck strategy um, for these large events. The other one is Black Pride in Atlanta, and that is very specifically designed to be an equity intervention um, with a lot of focus on events um, that are really uh, geared to attract uh, LGBTQAI plus people of color. So, Oh, and we also announced Oakland Pride Festival, and so that's also coming to The micro version is, what if you don't have an event with 50,000 people? What if you have smaller ideas? Well, big ideas for smaller groups of people that may benefit um, equity. And so this second equity innovation pilot really focuses on providing uh, a supply of vaccine to jurisdictions to really be a little bit of a lab to see what uh, what works best to get vaccine in people's arms. Um, And so we're going to allocate for both of those 10,000 vials. It's a pilot. And if it goes well, we'll obviously extend it. Um, but that's really what the strategy is, to try to you know, do a real equity intervention, which is what can we do to augment what's happening in a jurisdiction so that we can reach people in a way that they're not being reached by the sort of industrial string strategies for vaccine distribution?
2: You know, I want to pull the thread on that sort of intervention yeah. strategy because we've seen monkeypox cases slowing down in the United States, vaccines and uh Community outreach efforts are leading to declines in New York City. We see that wastewater samples in San Francisco show that the concentration of monkeypox virus has stabilized in recent weeks. Yet we have students returning to college campuses uh, and that poses a risk. What's happening with outreach to, to young people
1: yeah, so we're, we've are we had some great experiences working with colleges and universities as well as K through 12 schools. So some examples include um, special sessions that have happened with um, university and college health services, as well as work that's happened in sort of K through 12. Included in the K through 12 work is a um, fact sheet that focused on some of the most important questions and that's actually gone out to uh, many jurisdictions and to their their school systems. We have created a package of guidance that uh, is sort of the suite of guidance that when brought together really defines like what strategies ought to be on campuses and and in schools. So for instance the university guidance really includes congregate settings guidance, but also our safer sex guidance. Lots of outreach and clear, concise guidance that is available to um, all of the universities. Also, I think we've been really clear about messaging that uh, monkeypox is something that can affect anyone, but at the end of the day, over 90% of the cases are among gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men, often associated with sexual transmission. So um, other ways of getting monkeypox include other sort of forms of skin-to-skin contact, touching um, objects that someone with monkeypox's lesions have touched, and also rarely through through close contact of, of respiratory secretions. The, the skin-to-skin contact associated with sex is the most common, and I think that that should give people awareness of, of the of the disease with also addressing some of the anxiety, that there's uh, ways that are way efficient for transmitting the virus and ways that really aren't.
0: Well, Dimitri, there was really a very moving story in The New York Times from a patient of yours uh, and he said that when he was diagnosed that uh, you really tried to console him, uh, support him, assure him that things would work out. Tell us more about your experience and what you're hearing from your colleagues about the personal side of treating uh, this virus. What are patients expressing in terms of a sense of shame or stigma? Or have we moved on from that?
1: Yeah, first I'll start by saying that governmental public health and government needs to be the role model in terms of communicating in a way that is non-stigmatizing. And I'll say that I think I'm pretty proud of the way that we've worked about giving information about exposures and about this virus without creating documents and guidance that stigmatizes individuals or groups. With that said, there's definitely the experience of stigma and the pain of of actually uh, experiencing this infection. And, And I've heard um, for many, you know, that it's A, stigmatizing, B, a lot of people uh, experience significant pain, whether that's because of the oropharyngeal lesions or, or the genital lesions. So, you know, it's really um, about not only sort of treating the virus, if those if qualify um, for Tecovira matter but also like addressing the sort of psychological and pain issues that really are things that we can do to improve um, how people um, persevere through this infection. Um, I think we need to be the leaders to make sure that we mitigate stigma and work in ways to actually reduce stigma by actually not propagating it through the way that we talk about these, this infection.
2: I want to get back to the answer you gave just a, a moment ago about whether or not this monkeypox meets the definition of a sexually transmitted disease. Indeed, most cases as you had noted, have been linked to community of men having sex with men. Can you just clear that up? Is
1: monkeypox an STD? So yeah, so I think that the, that the official jury's still out in terms of how to define it. But I think that it's really important to acknowledge that the most efficient mechanism of transmission we have in this outbreak is sex, and specifically um, occurring in sex between men. Now, that could be because of the social network. I think we're still learning about this infection. But ultimately, I think that the guidance for folks, for providers, as well as for for people who could potentially be exposed to a monkeypox remains the same. If you're at risk, get vaccinated. Um, and so I think we have pretty clear guidance on that. And it's not just about vaccine. Um, but since this is sexually transmitted, you know, there are ways to change behavior temporarily as we get the immune wall built around the population um, to actually reduce the possibility of acquiring monkeypox. And you know, we have good data from surveys from the AMIS study that um gay bisexual other men who have sex with men have changed their behavior because of monkeypox. Um, they report 50% fewer one-time partnerships, um 50% have reported not having multiple partners um because and specifically in response to monkeypox. So I think um whether it's an, a sexually transmitted disease, a sexually transmissible disease, I think at the end of the day the advice is the same.
0: Well, Dimitri, uh, I know that uh, you obviously are expert in HIV uh, care and prevention, and the numbers uh, do show that a significant number of patients with monkeypox are also HIV positive. I wonder if you could uh, share a little bit with us about that connection, maybe share your thoughts on that.
1: Thanks, Margaret. Really a question near and dear to my heart here. So I think from the perspective of HIV, we know that there are some studies that show that individuals with living with HIV could have more severe disease. Generally speaking, um, the stronger someone's immune system is and the better their HIV is is managed from the perspective of viral suppression, so being undetectable, the more they're going to approximate someone without HIV in terms of the way that they they, um, they manifest their monkeypox disease. Um, Regardless of T cell count or viral suppression, uh, it's really important that people living with HIV who are at risk for monkeypox get vaccinated. And so now with increasing vaccine supplies, I would say that the message is sup- virally suppressed or not, T cells of 500 or T cells of 50 get vaccinated because that's going to be important in protecting you. Um, so I think you know, there, there will be more data coming. So I would just watch this space closely um, around the uh, the issue of how people living with HIV uh, may have a different experience with monkeypox.
2: You know, uh, Dimitri, I want to Talk to you about uh, your work globally uh, in, in terms of monkeypox. Are you having conversations uh, with colleagues ar- around the globe? And they're certainly suffering from the lack of vaccine. Certainly in Africa, you know, this is a disease, uh, one of those rare diseases of public health significance. Right? Really, sort of missed by CDC by others here. Didn't see, we? Don't seem to be prepared. And I'm wondering what your sense of uh, what's happening globally with monkeypox, how well it's being addressed. And I think one thing we've learned from COVID is that these are global uh, issues and that we really need to solve these problems globally, not only locally, and of course locally, it sounds like you are doing a great job in terms of leadership, but talk us a little bit about your conversations that are going on with colleagues around the globe and uh, what, what, what we're learning.
1: Yeah, so there, the administration is really dedicated to making sure that, that we control this epidemic, this outbreak in the US and, and also make sure that we're addressing issues around the world, not only for the US, because obviously if we address issues around the world, introductions become less common here, but also for the sake of the uh, the the other parts of the world. And so one of, I think, um, a, a clear signal um, of the importance is that um, part of the monkeypox um, response team includes a global Group, um, so with with leaders from UNA's UNAID as well as from CDC, and so I think we're we're actively having conversations about what support can look like, and there's already been I think support from the perspective of vaccine that's been provided. So this is a space to watch really carefully as we um, as we explore how we can best support monkeypox interventions outside of the U.S.
0: Well, Dimitri, I wonder if I can build on that to just ask you a little bit about uh, who are the people that are doing all of this work. You talked about uh, the, the big events uh, that are going on in Atlanta and, and other uh, large urban areas. You've talked about global work. Uh, we know that we need to pay attention to all of the states, right? It's not just the big states. And, and workforce everywhere is such an issue. Maybe just give our uh, listeners some insights into what is the new CDC workforce boots on the ground of people who can go out into communities around the country and. Educate and uh, uh, reassure, and also deliver vaccines, tests, whatever it is. Maybe talk a little bit about that with sure. us.
1: Sure, I'll start by saying, as someone who was a uh, a local health official, I used to always think of myself as a CDC and a HERSA extender. Um, so it's like one big team, and so part of part of the experience is that we're really working with our local jurisdictions to do the work on the ground. And again, public health is always a very local experience, and so really making sure that we provide vaccine and the technical resources that are needed for uh, for jurisdictions to do work. Also, I think um, I cannot possibly be on this call without shouting out the community health centers and say that they okay. are so critical in the work, and we're really excited that that through HRSA there's also an allocation of vaccine that has gone to community health centers and that I think will increase as as vaccine uh, availability increases over time. So that's really great news. Um, Definitely from the CDC perspective, like there are responders on the ground. And so for instance, in New Orleans, there is a team that's been deployed that is really helping to sort of orchestrate with New Orleans. It's not a CDC takeover uh, of New Orleans, but it is is a hand in glove uh, uh, interaction between state, city, and federal, and the community health centers and the, and the community based organizations that are really, really the boots on the ground that are, are reaching the communities that we need to reach the most. So, I mean, I've got to say, like, having come from an experience of a local jurisdiction and then um, also um, having conducted a lot of outbreak responses, this is when the magic happens. Um, When you have all of the various components of government and community coming together and I think that um, these equity interventions are such a great example of that because, you know, the community asked for us to do it, and then we figured out a way to do it from the perspective of vaccine allocation and then the partnership got deeper and deeper to the point where it really feels like one team New Orleans, one team Atlanta, one team Oakland and uh, and before a team Charlotte. So it's really exciting. And I can't wait to see what happens with the micro ones, the micro events, because like that, I think we're going to really see um, a, a lot of effectiveness, but then also we're going to learn some great ideas that other folks can adopt.
2: You know, I really like the the word partnership here. And and in public health, there's always uh, questions and criticisms. And as you know, some have said CDC has not learned from its COVID mistakes around testing as it faces monkeypox. But it sounds like, and maybe you can assure Americans that really the brightest minds and best strategies are in place, and it's it's really an opportunity for um, uh, partners to come together and, and work collaboratively on this.
1: Sure, I'll start by saying that um, having worked on a lot of outbreak responses, you know, measles in New York City, I was the incident commander for COVID-19 for about eight months in New York City, the speed at which this is sort of moving is pretty astounding. So, uh, but I'll also, so for instance, testing is a great example. So within a week of the first case, conversations were already happening with commercial labs to move into commercialization. And then within a month, it, ha- it started to happen. So that is actually really fast and really builds on the lessons of COVID, number one. Like the other example is I, I think, um, you know, the lessons that we've learned not from COVID, but HIV. And so when you look at the messaging and the strategies to sort of reach people, those are hard learned mess- hard learned lessons from 41 years of experience. And what I what I say using my HIV hat is, it only takes one one moment to create stigma that can last for decades. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think we were so intentional, and, I, and the we I mean the big we about trying to really be intentional about about how not to attach an infection to an identity but really focus on how exposures happen. So I think there's a lot of lessons um, that we pull from everything that we do in outbreak response. But I feel like when you look at this, it's really moving with a great amount of urgency. And I mean, I'm excited to be a part of it here um, at the White House. I was excited to be a part of it at the beginning. And I think that, you know, we're starting to reap, I think some, I mean, guarded optimism, but starting to reap some of the benefits of the work that's happened.
0: Well, Dr. Daskalakis, Dimitri, many thanks for your time and public service and for both your passion and compassion uh, in this work. And thank you to our audience for being here. Remember, you can learn more about conversations on healthcare or sign up for our email updates at www.chtradio.com. Thanks again, Dimitri.
1: Thank you so much for having me and thank you for being the leading edge of care in the U.S. With, at the community health center. So we really rely on you uh, to just make sure that we're we're caring for our people. So thank That's you. That's great. great.
2: At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics.
3: Laurie, what have you
2: got for us this week?
3: President Joe Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act on August 16. Part of the law deals with Medicare and prescription drugs. The law will lower at least some Medicare beneficiaries' prescription costs on Part D, that's Medicare's prescription drug program, and on Part B, which covers drugs administered in a doctor's office. The law requires the federal government to negotiate prices for some Medicare medications. It caps seniors' out of pocket drug costs at $2,000 a year. It requires rebates from drug companies if their prices increase faster than inflation. It expands eligibility for prescription drug benefits in the Part D low income subsidy program. It caps monthly insulin co pays at $35. It makes vaccines free with no out-of-pocket cost. Again, that's all for Medicare, not private health plans. Republicans have focused on the price negotiation aspect, and the pharmaceutical industry has long fought against attempts to enact such a policy. Their argument is that the policy would reduce the number of new drugs pharmaceutical companies bring to market. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimated there would be just two fewer drugs launched over the next decade under the legislation. Seniors who spend more than $2,000 a year on prescriptions would clearly benefit. That cap on yearly spending would launch in 2025, and it could affect more than 1.4 million beneficiaries. According to Kaiser Family Foundation estimates, right now, out-of-pocket costs of more than $7,050 for Part D drugs pushes seniors into what's called the catastrophic phase. They pay five percent of their drug costs after that threshold. The Inflation Reduction Act eliminates the five percent copay benefiting more than one point three million seniors. The cap on insulin copays also could affect millions. In 2020, 3.3 million Medicare Part D enrollees used insulin. About 400,000 Medicare beneficiaries who receive partial benefits under the low-income subsidy program could benefit from an expansion in eligibility for full benefits. Experts on health law and economics told us seniors who now can't afford to buy needed medicines also would benefit from the bill. The benefits of price negotiation to seniors are more difficult to anticipate. The law requires the Secretary of Health and Human Services to negotiate prices for some high-cost drugs that lack competition from generics or similar products and that have been on the market for 9 to 13 years.
2: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Anxiety disorders are on the rise among the nation's youth, and experts in the field of child psychology feel the condition starts much earlier in childhood and is far more common than previously thought, with an estimated one in five children being affected. But too often, these so-called internalizing disorders go undiagnosed. Unlike children with more expressive conditions such as ADHD or autism spectrum disorder, young kids struggling with anxiety or depression just seem like an introvert to the casual observer. University of Vermont child psychologist Ellen McGinnis says the process of diagnosis for younger children is often painstaking and can take months to confirm.
4: The whole point of it was to find an objective assessment battery for children with internalizing disorders because they have similar things for children with externalizing disorders and for autism, but not anxiety depression, which I think are the most overlooked disorders in that age group.
2: Dr. McGinnis says the traditional method of diagnosis involves creating scenarios that induce anxiety and the results can be inexact. So she teamed up with her husband and fellow researcher, biomedical engineer Ryan McGinnis, to create a wearable sensor that can pick up on physical cues that suggest the presence of anxiety using accelerometers and simple algorithms to compare normal stress responses.
4: So the device is called an inertial measurement unit and it's the about the size of a business card, and so we'd strap that to a belt on each child when they did the mood induction task. And it has an accelerometer in it, and so we're able to pick up angular velocity speed, how much the child is bending forward and backward, and it actually picks up 100 samples per second, so much more than the eye can see. And so we were able to see if kids with anxiety and depression move differently in response to a potential threatening information. And they do. Dr. McGinnis
2: says that it can pick up anxiety and depression disorder symptoms in a matter of minutes instead of months. Their research paper published in the publication Plus One shows the device was nearly 85% accurate in making a correct diagnosis.
4: What's really great about it is that we increase the sensitivity sensitivity compared to subjective parent reports and you know questionnaires that they fill out. So we're picking up more kids who might have gone previously undetected.
2: A simple, wearable tool that can assist parents and clinicians in determining if a child is suffering from anxiety disorder, leading to less guesswork and more rapid diagnosis and treatment. Now that's a bright idea. I'm Martin Selle.
0: And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCradio.com.